0: This podcast is strictly for mature listeners, so if you're under the legal drinking age, you are not permitted to listen under UK law. If you would prefer not to hear conversations about alcohol, you may want to listen to something else. But if that's not you, stay with us for Bar Fabric Presents. Hello and welcome to Bar Fabric Presents, a podcast brought to you by the Brown Forman Advocacy Team. Each episode, you'll hear from our team of ambassadors as we share stories about the brands we're proud to represent and the people who've inspired us along the way. I'm Ali Didienko, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to this episode of Bar Fabric Presents. In every episode, you'll hear from one of the team defending drinks that either have a bad rep or are overlooked in a segment called You're Wrong About. Throughout this series, we've heard the team make the case for the Cosmopolitan, non-age statement whiskey, and the Tequila Sunrise, to name a few. But now, it's my turn to take the stage and get behind something I'm really passionate about. In this episode, you'll hear Cam's conversation with Daryl Davis, Brown Foreman's Director of Cooperage Operations. We also have Danny catching up with Ruben for A Broad Spectrum. Plus, Joseph will be sharing with us the importance of positivity. All of that's still to come, but first, I have to tell you why you're wrong about RTDs. Impassionate defense of the ready to drink, better known as the RTD, or more simply, a cocktail in a can. I'll start my defense with a confession. I have not always been a fan of RTDs. In fact, I would go so far as to say I actively hated them. And I can't lie. I judge those of you who liked them. Most of the RTDs that hit the market in the 90s and early aughts came in clear glass bottles, highlighting how bright and unnaturally colored they were. These beer alternatives were usually highly sugared and made from neutral grain spirit, more akin to alcoholic soda than a balanced drink you'd expect in a bar. These Alcopops, as they are sometimes called, were less about sophistication and more about convenience. One of the first RTDs to hit the market was longkero, a Finnish mixed drink of grapefruit soda and gin created for the 1952 Olympics in Helsinki. Following the end of the Finnish prohibition in 1932, that's right, they had one too, the country was living with a strict state-controlled alcohol policy. Ahead of an influx of foreign tourists in town for the games, the government allowed some liberalization and introduced two brands of pre mixed, ready to drink long drinks one with brandy that disappeared in the 1970s, and one with gin that you can still find today. The gin long drink, aka longkero, pardon my Finnish, is still one of the most popular cocktails in Finland today, pre mixed or otherwise. And since 1995, when Finland joined the EU, the government no longer controls its production. As the rest of Europe, and indeed the world, caught on to the batched and bottled revolution, it was still bright blue liquids and highly sugared drinks that dominated the landscape. Enter Brown Foreman, leader in the ready-to-drink category, with a little drink you may have heard of, the Jack and Cola in a can. Jack and Cola was, and still remains, the number one bar call. It's refreshing, familiar, and marries two of the most iconic American flavors, whiskey, and cola. But what really sets it apart from those neon-colored RTDs of yore is the Jack Daniels. No grain alcohol or generic whiskey involved. With a can of Jack and cola, you know you're getting the same quality whiskey from the U.S.'s oldest registered distillery, as you would if you ordered it in your local. Since the pandemic, RTDs are ubiquitous. Most bars had to pivot their businesses to survive, so began offering popular cocktails in a ready-to-drink canned or bottled format. And this is a win for us all. The quality and variety of RTDs available today is a long way from the singular Lonkaro of 1952. No offense, Finland. But the RTD I'm most excited to tell you about, drum roll please, is Jack Daniels and Coca-Cola in a can. These two American giants have finally decided to take their relationship to the next level. And make it official. From 2023, look out for the new and improved black can. Coca-Cola and Jack Daniels are both ranked in the top 100 most valuable brands. And let's be honest, they both taste delicious, making this RTD a truly perfect pairing. Bet you didn't expect me to defend RTDs, but hopefully I've convinced you that nothing beats an ice-cold can of Jack and Cola.
1: Cam Dawson here for Bar Fabric Presents, and today I'm joined by someone pretty special. Now, before I introduce my mystery, how'd you get that job guest, let me say this. An oak barrel brings over half of the flavour and all of the colour to a finished American whiskey. In fact, in America, there can be no distiller's caramel or flavouring used in any bourbon, rye or Tennessee whiskey. It's 100% natural, and it's all about that American white oak or Quercus Alba to our Latin-speaking listeners. (laughs) And yet, brand training sessions across the globe will often skip over the wood chat, or at best, sum it up in a few lines. They may focus their chat on other raw materials, the corn, the barley, rye, sometimes even the yeast. We don't often get to speak to the people responsible for the most vital ingredient in American whiskey, barrels. At Jack Daniels, we have a bit of an advantage here in that we are the only American whiskey to make all of our own barrels. That sounds like a mad statement, doesn't it? But all of these big names in your back bar will source their most woody ingredient from independent cooperages working all across America. It's big business, and even the Scottish Coopers have emigrated stateside to take advantage of the barrel demand in the industry that uses its barrels once. Today I'm pleased to welcome Brown Foreman's Director of Cooperage Operations, Daryl Davis, to the show. Daryl joined Brown Foreman in 2013 as plant manager of the Clifton, Tennessee Sawmill. Over the past nine years, Daryl moved through the ranks and now runs the show as Director of Cooperage Operations out of the Jack Daniel Cooperage in Decatur, Alabama. And if one Cooperage wasn't enough for you... Darrell also oversees four mills across Tennessee, Alabama, Ohio, and Indiana, as well as the brown Foreman Cooperage in Louisville, Kentucky. It's the Jack Daniel Cooperage where Darrell is joining us from today via video link. If it's brown Forman whiskey, it's most likely that Darrell has been involved. So if there's anyone more qualified to speak to us about wood, it is this man. Darrell, welcome to Bar Fabric Presents. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us, especially with such a busy-sending job and for your first meeting of the day.
2: Uh, thank you, Cam. It's, it's good to be here.
1: From all my meetings and sessions with master distillers over the years, it's often said that around 50 to 60% of a whiskey's overall flavor comes from that barrel. But I've heard that you Coopers say it's closer to 60 to 70%. Let's big up the woodworkers together. What's your take on this?
2: sixty to seventy percent is what we typically go with as we give tours and and talk to people at the cooperage.
1: excellent daryl what what does a a typical day look
2: like for you a day in the life of Daryl oh wow that could be any day uh that could be anything uh we um so typically we do get an early start my my first meeting every morning starts around um seven to seven thirty every morning. Uh, and those are ops meetings at one of the sites. Um, we, um, typically I will meet with my Brown Foreman, uh, Cooperage first, just simply because they're on Eastern time. So they're an hour ahead of where, where I, where I reside or where I live. And, uh, and then an hour after that meeting, I have my, uh, Jack Daniel Cooperage meeting. So that is, that's the start of my day just to see what's going on in in our operations and, uh, I, I am very blessed to have a great team, um, very good team that keeps me informed, uh, able to make decisions on on your own. Uh, I, I come from, from that, um, I guess that thought of building a team that no one knows, building a team so well that no one knows who the real leader is. And with that, uh, you know, allowing these people to make decisions on their own is is very important and and helps me, helps me make my day better. Right. So I'm very blessed. But as you heard about, as we went through the process of going from from all of these different processes and components and workstations, you can imagine how many different moving parts we have. Any given day, we we are. We are exposed to uh, a very harsh environment when you when you think about machining or making a barrel, machining wood. Uh, it's very dusty. Du- wood dust is very uh, um, it's very rough and tough. It's very tough on our on our equipment. So any given day we could be dealt with something out of the ordinary. We really focus on continuous improvement at our sites. We focus on what's called PMs or preventive maintenance, predictive maintenance, um, but still, to that point, it's a very complex process. Um, now, it's a very elegant process, but it's there's a lot of complexity to our process or processes. So, any given day is different. It really is. Uh, there's a lot of strategy that goes into our into our day. Um, the the neat part about our. You, the neat part about this is, is is that we get to work with people, and we get to work in in two different industries, really. If you think about it, we get the spirit industry and we get the wood industry, um, which is which is pretty cool because we get both both sides of very good good industries, and it's it's just neat. It's a very interesting job.
1: You've worked for Brian Foreman uh, for uh, the, the the past nine years. Um... What well, sort of uh, from our earlier chat, we uh, to our listeners, uh, Daryl and I had a quick catch up to get to know each other because it was the first time that we met yesterday. Uh, so you you were telling me you had a a pretty surprising uh, and very unrelated uh, start to your career working with another raw material that 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 wasn't American white oak. T- tell us a little bit about uh your past uh, and then maybe also your 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 training to to become the, the 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 director that you
2: are today absolutely i i'm i'm a country boy all right i am uh the the site that i i didn't share this with you yesterday cam but the site that i started with brown foreman is 30 minutes from the town that i grew up in which my parents still live there there, where they lived, they they owned a small machine shop. So I got, I got exposure at a very young age to manufacturing, and grew up in the machine shop. Now, I was a, I was, it. My my dad made a point uh, to make sure that I had a trade as I grew up uh, that I could always fall back on, which I'm again very fortunate to have that, and. Um, and it's helped me. It laid the foundation to anything that I have become or all of my successes in in my career. We, um, at one day, I, I remember the conversation. Um, he told me one time, he said, you just need to go get a job, go get your own job, get your own place while you still know everything. And uh, we laugh about that now, but if, if you have kids, you understand where I have a 19 year old and a 15 year old, I understand what he, what his frustration was. And, uh, he reminds me all the time that I'm raising myself, uh, that, that they're just like me. Um, but, uh, the, uh, so, so I did, I went out and, you know, worked a couple places, worked in the machining industry and, and, uh, and eventually got was, was met this beautiful girl that, and, and, and uh, we, we ended up having a, having a child and, and, I I went back to, I went back to school, back to college or, or university, you guys may call it. And, uh, but, um, I went back to, and finished my undergrad and my grad and, and got into supervision and, or management and worked myself up to, a uh, through, through two, two major jobs, which, uh, the first one was aerospace, um, where we made landing gear for, for, um, uh, for, for some notable companies. And, um, and then my second um, job that, that really formed me as a leader uh, was a place that it was in the orthopedic industry where we made hip and knee implants. And uh, I learned so much at that place. I had a, a wonderful leader that taught me how to do things the right way, and how to do things the wrong way. So I learned both of them from from this gentleman, and and still talk to him today. And but was very stressful industry. Uh, it's a very um, fast, very um, just a very stressful energy. I think I had something like twenty two hundred SKUs that I managed on any day, any given day. Um, had a hundred and some odd people in it uh, that that reported up through me. It was it was um, that direct, you know. I don't want to say directly, but to me and my supervisors. And and so one uh, one day, I got a phone call from a friend of mine at um, this Clifton site. Um, and I, I knew him uh, for quite a while. And, and he said, hey, I'm moving back to Louisville. There's a job opening coming, op- coming that, that I think you'd be a good fit at. And I was like, all right, I really don't, not looking for anything. I got a pretty good gig here uh, not going anywhere. Uh, but he said, you really need to look into it. You'll be a great fit. Got to looking at it. It's, it's there close to my parents. And I thought, ma'am, let's do it. So put in for it. Um, and, and ultimately got the, got the position. Um, uh, so that's how I got to Brown Foreman. A month into my job at Brown Foreman, uh, or the Clifton mill, um the Clifton mill is what see so, so in the mill industry you have what's called gate logs, which loggers bring their logs to you and then they have uh, external log buyers that go out and buy logs. A month into my job at at uh, at the Clifton site, uh, we got low on on logs, which is typical right? so so anytime you have a real wet winter, you'll you'll your your log volume will drop just because people can't get into the woods and get get the logs out. So we were out of wood and we didn't have a external log buyer. So the guy that, uh, that hired me, that was a huge influence on it, which is a, a question for you later from you later is um, or that I saw you had. His name is Bob Russell. And and he told me, he said, I need you to go buy logs. And I'm like, okay. And I mean, I I knew what a white elk was. That's pretty much all I knew. (laughs) So I spent some time out in our log yard with our log buyer learning how to grade logs. And 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 mind you, I'm a month into this industry. And I just, I mean, just really soaked up every ounce of knowledge that I could um, and went out and I was good at building relationships. I love people. So, and that's the two things you need. You need to know how to buy a log, and you need to know how to get along with people. And so, I went out, and I mean, truly was able to to build, help help build our log supply back up, just by going out and you know introducing myself and and, and building relationships. And still to this day, I've been going for five years from that from that from that group, and and still to this day, they they have uh, loggers that will sell them logs on the relationships that I built. Um, it's a very relationship, um, strong industry. Uh, if, if, if you have relation, if you, if we have, if they trust you, they will sell you their logs, no matter what you pay. If they don't trust you they will not sell you their logs so that's a it's a huge huge relationship based industry
1: D- tell me from the conversation that we had yesterday you were saying to me about some of the things that you you find in a stack of wood uh, and there was I was absolutely shocked tell our listeners some
2: of the amazing things absolutely it is it's it's amazing what they will find inside these logs so if you if you remember Earlier on, we we set these logs out here and they go into into our into our log yards and they may sit out there for a while. Well, one of the things that happens is uh if a lightning strikes a tree or ants build up in it, the it, it could, or it just rots from the center, it could have um a, a hollow spot in the in the base of the tree. And um and there's been a couple times we found snakes in there um, and, and you'll do that in your stave yards too, right? You'll, you walk through the stave yard and a snake will pop its head out and in between a stack of staves. Uh, we found snake eggs in them, um, animals. Um, we try to get those out before we do cut up the, (laughs) do cut the log up. But, uh, we've also, um, we, we have found, um, uh, man, we found everything from you know muskets bullets um in in trees of course very very common to find a bullet in a tree or a musket uh we found um horseshoes um uh, uh, all kinds of horseshoes in it where someone through the years of putting a horseshoe on on a limb and it's grown up over it um we've um, we've even found a sausage grinder and I, that was the oddest one i think i've ever i've ever seen I'm guessing it was an old home place or something. Someone tacked a sausage grinder up on it to, to grind their meat back in the day. And and um, and then it just grew up over it and we cut right through it one day. <laughs> <laughs> so uh,
1: this brings me quite nicely over to innovation. Uh, are we likely to see a, 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 a special limited edition Jack Daniels in the future <laughs> aged in sausage barrels? Yeah. <laughs>
2: I'll ask Chris. I'll ask Chris if he can come up with some, come up with one, but I, I doubt it. Uh, the bad the thing about the thing about metal in in a remember your your, your white oak's got all those tannins. It's real acidic, and um, and what happens when metal gets in it? It will it will turn the log blue. So it, it's pretty evident once you cut once you cut into that log and get get the bark off. Cut into the log, you're going to see you're going to see the metal inside it pretty quick. Um, so those do not make it into a barrel, <laughs> uh, but uh, it, it is there. It is common to find things inside the logs as we're, at, at our sawmills.
1: Well, Daryl, I'm gonna I'm gonna wrap this up, and I've got two two final questions for you. So when you're at home uh, sitting there with a glass of whiskey in your hand, you you must have a, a a wonderful sense of pride knowing that you contribute to to what I see as one of the most consistent whiskies in the world. Um, that must be up there. but what's your favorite thing about your role as the Cooperage Operations Director? Oh
2: wow. Um, Cam, I gotta tell you, um, I'm very fortunate to to work to work with this team. Nothing pleases me more though, to see someone that has worked for me be successful and and actually move out and take and grow inside of Brown foreman. Um, the, the the plant manager at at Brown Foreman Cooperage. He worked for me as a supervisor here at Jack Daniel Cooperage and has grown up had, and kind of took a little bit of my path too. He went and, and the path that I took. He went and was a plant manager at a, a small site, one of our one of our Stave Mills, and now is the plant manager at at the Cooperage in at Louisville, um, and has uh, around 200, 250 employees that report through him. So those successes is what it's all about.
1: Fantastic. And my final question to you, Daryl, is circling back to you sitting on that porch that you've built. Uh, you've got a glass in your hand. What is in that glass? What's your go-to drink? It can be one of the family of Jack Daniels brands. It can be any of the other Brown Foreman brands. Uh, or it can be a cocktail. What, what's your uh, What's your drink of choice?
2: Um, My... So, so I have a few things and, and I will, I will say this being, being the director of both cooperages, I, <laughs> I support all of the, all of the Brown Foreman brands and and I enjoy all of the Brown Foreman brands. Um, but I guess my go-to probably my go-to Jack Daniels out of the Jack Daniels family is going to be the Jack Daniels rye. Absolutely. Going to be that. A- absolutely. Hands down. Um, my, I guess if I'm, if I'm drinking something, if I'm out and I'm drinking something, with some friends, it's going to be Jack Daniel's single barrel, right? If I'm just enjoying the, you know, a Jack Daniel's single barrel need or on the rocks is, is you can't go wrong. Right. And, and, um, and then other than that, it is, you know, the, I, I like Woodford reserve as well. Um From, I, 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 to be honest with you, I like them all. <laughs> I, uh, Old Forster's another good You're one. having
1: your cake and eating it here. This uh, I said That's one.
2: right. <laughs> but <laughs> but being from the Cooperage, I can't leave out Cooper's craft.
0: Big shout out to Daryl Davis, who joined us all the way from the USA.
3: Welcome to Abroad Spectrum. My name is Danny. I'm the UK brand ambassador for El Jimador and erradura Tequila. And with me... Is wonderful, Ruben. So now, before Ruben explains to you his fantastic, his fantastic curriculum, I'm gonna tell you we in during this session we're gonna talk about tequila, how we drink it, how you drink it, Ruben, how it is drunk in Mexico, maybe different types of agave spirits, and uh, everything that revolves around it, and maybe you can recommend some taco places in Guadalajara as well. Of course. In the end, maybe. Of course. Right. Yes. So uh, so let us start, Ruben. What about you? So what do you do? Who are you? Tell
4: me everything. I am uh, Ruben Aceves. I am the, uh, the Global Brand Ambassador for Casa Herradura. I've been doing so this for basically 21 years. Uh, I've been related with Herradura for more than that, like 47, 48 years. 48 years. Working for Herradura 21, okay. already last, uh, last December, but drinking and enjoying Herradura for the last 47 years. So my, my heart and my passion is uh, drinking radura, of course. I am I'm based at Guadalajara, Mexico. Mm-hmm. I was born and raised here at Guadalajara. Mm-hmm. And uh, very happy to, to meet with you here at- uh,
3: Finally our in person. beautiful <laughs> distillery in, uh, in Amaditan, Casa mm-hmm. Herradura. Welcome. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much. So finally I get to meet you, finally we get to talk. So the first question will be here, can you explain us the differences between say, I don't know, mezcal and tequila and maybe resilla. Tell us a bit more about it. The the agave family has like 136 different types
4: of agaves. Mm -hmm. Before that name, they were all called magueyes. Mm -hmm. Magueyes. And then there is kind of like a conflict of whether it was uh, a, a fermented sap made out of a maguey down in Oaxaca to do mezcal. Mm -hmm. The meaning of mezcal is an Indian dialect that means that it's the cooked maguey. It's called mezcal. Mm -hmm. Uh, So maybe mezcal was first made in in, in Oaxaca Mm -hmm. back in the days, but at the same time, there was other type of agaves up here in in, in Jalisco Mm -hmm. that also produced pulque. Pulque it's also an Indian dialect word that means it's not good anymore, you know. Pulque, the Indians tried the fermented sap. Mm-hmm. You know, the juice out of the cooked maguey, mm-hmm. the cooked mezcal, it's sweet. But once it ferments, it doesn't t- t- taste that great as it's fermenting. I love it, but maybe not people do. Okay. So when they tried it, they say, it's not that sweet, nice anymore. It's pulque. So pulque mm-hmm. means not that great anymore. So both kind of like the same age, somewhere around uh, you know thousands of years. Cooked maguey mezcal in Oaxaca, same thing up here in in the uh, tequila tequila area. Uh, difference between tequila and mezcal it's the region. Mm-hmm. So basically, if we go back to the to the, back in the day. Uh, because now the, the area has grown to more states. But back in the day, mezcal was from Oaxaca. Tequila was from Jalisco. Mezcal is from a different type of agave. Espadin, salviana potatorum, and like nine other different types of, uh, of agaves. Tequila more so the blue tequilana Weber.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: But also the, the blue tequilana Weber was uh, legally suggested about in 1902. Mm-hmm. I was gonna ask, so, but so, why the blue this, 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 one then? So this is 400 years after, mm-hmm. or, or more. So uh, before that, it could be made out of anything. So mm-hmm. nowadays, since 1902, tequila has to be made only out of blue tequila however, whatever, mm-hmm. but mezcal from, from several other types of agaves. Mm-hmm. And there's the Ricilla mm-hmm. uh is made out of a different one, the Americana type of agave. It's up in the mountains in in, in Jalisco, mm-hmm. in between Guadalajara and Puerto Vallarta, mm-hmm. which a beautiful spirit. All of them are. Mm-hmm. The only thing is that you have to understand the difference in between in between the three of them. They're like cousins, like dear cousins, same family of agaves, mm-hmm. different regions, process basically the same. Okay. Uh, But then you have uh, also uh, Bacanora. Bacanora, Mm -hmm. it's on on the north, in Sonora, northwest, Pacific Ocean, Bacanora. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of beautiful Mexican
3: spirits. Do you think, I've got an off-topic question here, do you think that there will be enough agave? If mezcal grows to be as big as tequila now, is there gonna be enough agave in Mexico? Well, if they plant properly, I don't see why not, because Mm -hmm. again, there's a, a very big you know, uh,
4: distance difference in between the uh, agave for tequila Mm -hmm. and the mezcal Mm -hmm. for, I know they're both agaves, but mezcal for Oaxaca. The the difference between Jalisco and Oaxaca should be at least uh, 700 kilometers difference. Mm -hmm. So uh, the the problem about having enough or not, it's the planning because Mm. as you maybe know, or you know, your friends should know an agave for tequila, mezcal for for mezcal, it takes six to seven years to be ready. Mm -hmm. So the planning for what you want to sell seven years from now has to begin today. Mm -hmm. So uh, we have to plant the agaves today for the tequila we need to produce seven years from now. Mm -hmm. So forecasting sales seven years from now, it's a a bit complicated. But uh, there should not be a problem if the planning it's done right. properly.
3: Okay. Okay. So let's let's go back to tequila then. So obviously we spoke about other agave spirits. Let's talk about big difference between one hundred percent agave mixto. What is your view on that?
4: Well, the big difference first is mm-hmm. that one hundred percent agave tequila. It's it's like this. It's like wow. this it means that the entire liquid alcohol. It's the result of fermenting and distilling. Uh, agave uses only. Mm -hmm. That's 100% agave tequila. Mm -hmm. If you make a mixed tequila, means that the alcohol in this glass would be 51% alcohol coming from agave, Mm -hmm. and 49% coming from other sugar source. In the last three or four years, the the thing has changed a whole lot. Mm -hmm. So now I think it's like 80% of tequilas to the world, Mm -hmm. 100% agave, and only 20% mixed or so. Consumer now do knows that you should drink 100% agave tequila and mixto, not saying that every mixto is not nice tasting or, or not bad quality, mm-hmm. we're not saying that. Mm-hmm. But sadly there is a lot of uh, consistency on mixtos not being that great.
3: Okay. So in Mexico, Mexican people, traditionally would you prefer a blanco or uh, an an older tequila? Because obviously you said it yourself, like tequila is blanco, right? Was it always the case that tequila was blanco? So like, what's the Mexican way of understanding tequila?
4: From 1521, Mm -hmm. when tequila was first distilled, Mm -hmm. before that was just a fermented sap, it remained blanco only. Okay. 1521. Mm -hmm. 1974, Mm -hmm. that means... 453 years, many years, 453 years, was blanco only. Okay. 1974 Erradura created the first mm-hmm. reposado mm-hmm. because we knew that in Europe people liked the brown spirits, brandy, cognac, whiskey. We so we said, what happens if we age tequila? We should. So we did in 74. The first reposado ever in the industry was Herradura Mm -hmm. Reposado. Mm -hmm. Herradura changed the entire concept of drinking tequila. And from then on, people did switch to reposado Mm -hmm. to a point that maybe 90 plus percent of uh, people drink reposado. Mm -hmm. It has been coming down back again to Blanco. So Mm -hmm. nowadays, maybe it's like 70% of tequila In Mexico, Mm -hmm. they drink by by reposado and the rest is is blanco. So blanco is growing because now people are going back to the originality, back to the basics, if you will. I've never left blanco. I've been drinking blanco ever since 1974 and only blanco. I enjoy reposado, of course, and Alejo, but Mm -hmm. but, uh, the majority of consumers in Mexico drink reposado. Okay. The true, true tequila aficionado, if Mm -hmm. you will, we drink blanco. Okay. But the majority of consumers in Mexico, Mm -hmm. which uh, I would say 40% it's neat, Mm -hmm. 60% cocktails, not margaritas. Mm -hmm. Mexico, we're not a margarita type of consumer. Mm -hmm. We do more like... Highball glasses, tequila with Coke. Yeah, I've got, a, I've got
3: a question for tequila, that as tequila, well.
4: Tequila with squirt. We're mm-hmm. not margarita drinkers. Mm-hmm. So 60% would be highball blends, sure. not cocktails. Mm-hmm. And 40% would be neat.
3: We're, we're big time in, in bringing neat. Okay. Can you mention, out of your out of your mind, one at uh, the top of your head, uh, uh, a bar in Guadalajara and one in Mexico City with... Fantastic tequila selections. That's
4: a good question. Mm. Uh, Guadalajara, great tequila selection.
3: Mm. You
4: know, uh, maybe La
3: Tequila. La Tequila. La tequila okay. of that yeah. was it. Was very easy. La actually. Tequila.
4: Okay. La Tequila, which is funny, you know, because the tequila in in Spanish is El Tequila, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but that is masculine. It's not yes, feminine, right? Yes, there you yeah. go. Even though the word finishes in A, Mm -hmm. uh, which seems to be feminine. No, and so it's El Tequila. Mm -hmm. But that restaurant is called La Tequila. So they have great food. Mm -hmm. The owner is a good friend of mine, Mm -hmm. very nice person, Federico. Mm -hmm. He has a great selection of tequilas. Okay. La Tequila.
3: And here in Guadalajara. 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 And what about uh, Mexico City?
4: Mexico City... I uh, was Cantina... It's Cantina 49, Cantina Twenty Nine. I don't I don't remember the name. I don't go to Mexico City too often, thank okay. God. I don't like going to Mexico City that much. Okay, fair enough. But they have a couple of uh, places in Mexico City, and they have one also in somewhere in Miami. Mm-hmm.
3: It's
4: Cantina 49, Cantina 29. It's a really nice place. Let's say it's Cantina
3: 49. Cantina, People can Google yeah, it. Yeah.
4: It's fine. Well, there, but there are, you know, there are so many. One of the things about Mexico City is there's mm-hmm. a lot of cantinas. Mm-hmm. There's hundreds of cantinas. Sure. You come in, and they, 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 you order one tequila, and they bring you 20 different botanas. Mm-hmm. You don't even have to order food or anything. It's big, with one tequila or two, they'll bring you so many uh, botanas. They're amazing to go. They're very simple, rustic places, mm-hmm. but they're just uh, amazing, and there's a yeah. lot of them.
3: Cantina Tijuana, Cantina, there's so many places. Okay, so too many, too many to mention, that's fine. Yeah. Let's, say, let's say maybe it was Cantina 49, and, uh, and La, tequila La Tequila here in Guadalajara. Is a
4: restaurant, has a nice bar also, upstairs.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: It has a nice bar that I think is called uh,
3: Toloache. Mm-hmm. La Tequila, very nice place. Okay, let's go with La Tequila then. And, uh, and final question, final question, because we, we were talking about food a lot, and I'm getting hungry now. What is the best place for tacos here in Guadalajara? <laughs> you tell me. Well and for people in the UK, maybe they travel to Guadalajara. Where do they need to go?
4: Funny, funny enough.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: You know, La Tequila will give you beautiful tacos. Mm-hmm. It's it's a well-established restaurant. Yeah. There is another place that's called Tacos Providencia. Tacos Providencia. Very nice tacos. But the best, mm-hmm. it's a street vendor. Okay. Does not even bear a name. Okay, we call no them as tacos Don Juan. Don Juan. Tacos Don Juan.
0: Mm-hmm.
4: Now the son is tacos Don Luis. Mm-hmm. Juan passed away. Okay. So now they switch the name a bit to his son, tacos Don Luis. Yeah. It's a street vendor. Sure. In the middle of nowhere, it's pretty difficult to find. Okay. Me. I need to take you there. <laughs> okay. Uh, it's maybe seven minutes away from your hotel, which you're staying right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just a street vendor. There's no, there's no place to sit,
5: mm-hmm.
4: and there's you know plastic rustic plates mm-hmm. with a plastic cover, and they put your plate, your your tacos in there, mm-hmm. and you can drink you know cheek, tongue, mm-hmm. Stripes. Mm-hmm. uh and that's the best. No, 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 no. You have no idea. You so have no. It's idea. like other levels, the levels of okay. best tacos uh-huh. in
0: town. I loved the conversation between Danny and Ruben. No one knows tequila quite like these two.
5: Hello, this is Joseph. I'm here to talk about the importance of positivity. Okay, here we go. I'm gonna do it. It's no problem. We've got three or four minutes. That's plenty. We've got this. We're gonna absolutely conquer this massive and wildly personal psychological and philosophical topic around attitude, outlook, introspection and mindset. And you know why? Because I'm an expert on this stuff, right? It's no sweat. Okay, it may be some sweat. No, truly, the only way I can do this, honestly, is to localize the word, narrow the scope. And draw on my own experiences. So, as a subheader for this section on the importance of positivity, I would admit, I regret what I missed at certain points in my life due to thinking that I was better than others. And such is the danger of ego and the ease with which it inflates as you start to win competitions, get awards, start to work somewhere you're proud of, get noticed by brands, you know, all the fun stuff that comes along with your professional ascension. And in January, I wrote a short piece on humility. And you can find it on my Instagram or the Bar Fabric Instagram under a picture of me earnestly offering the camera an old fashioned. It essentially covers my journey in relationship with personal hype and quote unquote success. One thing I find when I reflect on that period is looking back, I would call it the height of my hospitality career. It's just how infectious negativity can be. There's something dangerous, intoxicating even, about when someone you admire lays into a person or place, especially when they bring you in with them. You know, like, we'd never been caught dead doing that. And you're like, yeah, no way, we wouldn't. It reminds me of the archetypal bully's sidekick. You know, Crab and Goyle folding their arms behind the leader. And, of course, I'm forever at risk of getting too caught up in the world of Hogwarts. But in Draco Malfoy and his goons, we do find some applicable parallels. If you're a leader or even an authority figure in your team try and check your judgment what does it say about you could it be symptomatic of an insecurity or a mild desperation to be recognized as the best because i've been there that's okay it's totally natural this is especially pertinent when observing others finding their own success and i'm asking you this as i would to my younger self are they stealing from you because if the answer is no Then consider what it is you're exercising by hating on them there's power enough for everyone if you identify with a sidekick maybe you're someone who's coming up you're aspirational or maybe you've just fallen into the orbit of a particularly charismatic hater well you've got greater options consider this person you admire beyond their professional stature what drives their vitriol do they look like they're at peace it's up to you how much you invest in diagnosing and helping them but i've never seen. Peace in bitterness. And after that, and more practically speaking, consider the possibility that judgment and resentment can poison opportunities for growth. They can turn you against others. And I've seen it hold talented people back, mostly demonstrating patterns less visceral than hate, because that seems quite big. The more insidious notions that A, everything is lame, or B, that the way you do things is the only way that they should be done. And I personally have to shout Jeff Robinson, Remy Savage on this one who both continue to set wicked examples against that way of thinking, which segues me neatly to summarize. And it's always funny at this point, because now it's like I'm going to give you the answer, you know, I'm going to give you the keys to positivity, compassion, open heartedness, like I have them. But what I would say is, wherever you can, and wherever you see yourself on your journey, take the time to rise above your aspirations and individual stresses, and celebrate others. Admire their efforts and appreciate their journeys, both public and private. There's wisdom and power everywhere. And so long as we try and remain open and positive, we can all help ourselves.
0: Thanks for listening to another episode of Bar Fabric Presents. If you've enjoyed the show, please share and leave us a review. If you've missed episode one and two, check them out now. We have a segment called Four More Bars which talks about the importance of music setting the right atmosphere in bars and venues. There's an accompanying playlist every episode, so you can hear all of the tracks Joseph talks about with his guest. It's available on Spotify, so check it out now. You can find more information on our guests in the show notes. And finally, a huge thank you to the team. I'm Ali Didienko. This podcast was recorded at Capsule 24 Studios in London and produced by Silver Music Entertainment.